0: This is Healthcare Matters on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Healthcare Matters is a program that delves into healthcare policy and issues. The hosts are not medical clinicians, and they're not able to offer advice about medical conditions or diseases. You're always encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Healthcare Matters, sponsored by Hartford HealthCare, hosted by Rebecca Stewart and Elliot Joseph. We're you're here. Welcome to Healthcare Matters. This is Elliot Joseph, and today I'm going to start us off with a question, and it's about expired prescriptions. What is in your medicine cabinet, or perhaps it's the kitchen drawer, or wherever? So many of us have older prescriptions hanging around, and we don't know what to do with them. It's not too strong to say that these medicine cabinets actually today are becoming the new drug dealers in our community And the numbers back that up. Half of all teens who have abused medication actually got them from family and friends. And it's largely without even any knowledge on behalf of those family and friends. We all have a role to play in figuring this out to make sure that we're being responsible with the prescription drugs that are in our homes.
1: And that's what we're talking about this morning. Older prescription drugs do cause all sorts of problems, from abuse and addiction to contaminating our water supply. So what does it mean to be responsible? That is a message that you're going to hear a lot about in the coming weeks. You will see it on billboards. You're going to see it on social media and television, all part of a newer and very important campaign that we believe is there to push us all to think about what we can do, how to be responsible. We're going to delve into what is happening in emergency departments and police departments, how so many folks are focused on this incredibly important goal. But first, we do have a reminder this morning that recovery is possible.
0: Absolutely. And joining us in the studio this morning, several of our friends, Steve McKinnon. Steve uh, has an incredibly important message to share He is a living reminder that you can be released from the grips of addiction with the right help and the right treatment, and Steve is uh, here to tell his story with us. We also are joined by Pat Reamer, who she is the president of the Hartford Healthcare Behavioral Health Network, and Pat is also a nationally recognized leader in mental health and substance abuse. For several years prior to joining us, Pat was the commissioner of the state of Connecticut's Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. And she has nearly 30 years of experience. I would say, though, more importantly than all that, Pat has a remarkable passion uh, for this work that drives all of us uh, (laughs) to get better every day. And then a little bit later on our show, one of our colleagues, Dr. Craig Allen, will be joining us. He is a child and adolescent psychiatrist and an addiction medicine specialist. And he carries the new title of Vice President for Substance Abuse at Hartford HealthCare.
1: So we thank everybody for joining us this morning. And we are going to start with Steve. Steve, you are hope. You embody hope. And that is why you're here with us this morning. You had some really, really tough days.
2: I did, yeah. Thank you for having me this morning. Um, my I'm 34 now and my journey into recovery began at Rushford in 2014 and prior to that my 20s was just a vicious cycle of using drugs, trying to get sober, trying to find recovery, um, going to jail and it just seemed like it was never going to end. Um, I, you know, I started off with just drinking alcohol and smoking marijuana throughout my teens. You know, I never felt like life was bearable. Um, you know, I just always felt less than, insecure. I, I, always wanted attention and didn't feel like I was getting it. You know, I grew up in an alcoholic home. My father drank and did drugs on a regular basis, and and life was was hard growing up. And I spent a lot of time throughout my twenties blaming my parents for why my life was going the way it was going. And it wasn't until I realized what I was up against and took responsibility for my actions and asked for help Hmm. from the professionals that things started to turn around. Um, You know, I had a friend in my early twenties and he was who introduced me to Oxycontin at the time. And, And, you know, we would either take it out of his aunt's medicine cabinet or we would buy it off the streets, which I'm sure some of those came from other medicine cabinets. Mm. Um, mm. You know, which is why it's so important to, to be able to, to find a way to, to combat and this and get these unused prescriptions out of these medicine cabinets and keep them out of the hands of people that could get a hold of them and misuse them and, end up, you know, going through a lot of pain.
1: When you were at your most, what you felt was most hopeless time, what was it that sparked, you know what, I'm not going to give in to this. This drug is not going to keep me. I am going to get help and change my life. What was that moment?
2: It was probably right before I went to treatment. Um, Prior to that, I was in jail, and it was really – when I came to the conclusion that I I, I couldn't imagine life with or without drugs. Um, prior to that, it was I can't be, I couldn't imagine being able to live life without something to change the way that I felt. And once I kind of came to the conclusion that I I, I was in so much pain mm-hmm. that I couldn't imagine living with the drugs as well and. I, I knew I needed to ask for help.
0: We often hear that people um, at their lowest point, get, sometimes you have to get right. to the lowest possible spot before you can deal with the circumstance you find yourself in. Is that similar to what you felt at that moment, Steve?
2: Yeah. Um, I had just gone, it was my 20s, again, was just a vicious cycle of, Going to jail, trying to get sober, not being able to. And, you know, it was, I had never been in in so much pain that, you know, with, and I didn't understand for a while that the drugs was, after a while, the drugs were contributing to that pain and the shame and the guilt that was just excruciating and eventually was leading to why I kept, kept using.
0: And so many of our medicine cabinets are filled with these drugs, um, and part of what we'll be talking about as our hour winds uh, through is what should we do? What can we do? What are the resources so that we dispose of them properly and in a timely fashion?
1: And one of the things that we've been working on that we've learned so much about, now even 10 years ago, Rushford that you're talking about, Rushford actually helped put in these prescription take-back boxes. They did that in the town of Merritt, and what we've learned... This is really interesting, is that in Connecticut, drugs and take-back boxes, sort of why don't you see them in hospitals, why don't you see them in pharmacies, there are laws that say drugs have to be a one-way street, from what we've learned working with the Department of Consumer Protection, a one-way street, so that if you're receiving something from a pharmacy, you can't give back in that same place. They just feel it's too risky. That's why you don't see them at pharmacies and hospitals. But what you can do is go to this website, which is Be Responsible. Org. That is a Hartford Healthcare site. And you're going to see a link to the Department of Consumer Protection and all of the sites all across the state that are police departments with these take back boxes. Those are for bigger things, sort of needles, things that you cannot get rid of. The other option are these drug deactivation kits, which we're actually giving away, and we're doing this because the charcoal in these deactivation kits deactivates the drugs. It makes them not at all; they lose all of their efficacy and you can safely throw them away. They biodegrade, and that's why we're doing this. You cannot, as Elliot and I were talking about earlier, you can't throw them down the toilet. It's very dangerous. There's so many different mm-hmm. drugs in our water system. You don't want to do that, but you do want to get rid of them. But Steve's story is really, truly highlighting hope and where you are today, and that's something, Pat, that you're so passionate about. Talk a little about the new HOPE program sure. and all of these different things that we're doing. Sure. Sure.
3: Um, Our newest HOPE program is actually in New Britain um, and this is a program that started actually in Manchester, Connecticut. Um, And it's a program where the police work very closely with local hospitals, and it's um, created so that if the police find somebody who who has overdosed, for example, or somebody who is looking for treatment, they do have to check to see if there's a warrant. Um, And if there is no outstanding warrants, then they will bring that individual, if they request, to uh, the emergency room. And in that emergency room, we can begin to offer them treatment immediately and put them onto a medication-assisted treatment if that's something they're interested in. And it's, it's a way to not have us try and arrest ourselves out of this, frankly. It's the police partnering with hospitals in the communities to try and help with this problem.
0: It's so representative of the fact that we are in large part the safety net for our community yes. and putting yeah. these resources to work actively in the emergency rooms, the introduction of this idea of recovery coaches. Can you talk a bit about about the recovery coach concept? Sure, this is of
3: course part of my passion. Yes. So we do have recovery coaches in all of our emergency departments and they are individuals who have lived experience and have gone through training and we call them in when somebody comes into an emergency room looking for treatment or again after unfortunately an overdose and they assist that person in getting into treatment or getting back into their community where they've had um, support before, or just staying connected to the person. So if somebody isn't quite sure they're interested in treatment at that moment, the recovery coach will give them a card and a number and stay in touch with them.
0: Yeah. S- Steve, let me ask you, uh, I don't know if you came in touch with recovery cho- coaches during your time. Um, if you did, what was the experience like? And if you didn't, how do you feel about a program like that? What, uh, what Could it have made a difference for you?
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, I actually did not come in contact with any recovery coaches, um, but it absolutely could have made a difference. I There were numerous times throughout my 20s where even if I wasn't brought to the emergency room by a police officer, I stumbled in myself um, at the times where I was homeless, jobless, mm-hmm. just roaming the streets. Um, and there were times, yeah, where I went into emergency rooms and without programs like this there are limited resources Um, you know they would hold me for three days maybe make a few phone calls couldn't find a bed and unfortunately just have to release me um, even if it was right back to the streets right did
1: you have a sense of judgment in those rooms what what was that experience like
2: Um, I mean there's still the stigma um, surrounding you know someone that's suffering from addiction you know I could sense People were a little hesitant to kind of get really close. Um, uh-huh. You know, they made their best efforts, right. definitely, to to be empathetic and to be understanding and helpful. Um, but, you know, there's, I could sense a lack of understanding.
1: So what's remarkable about this newer program, Hope, is, again, really having this passion from behavioral health and people like Pat and police. And we are joined right now by Lieutenant Jim Goslin with the police department in Jim, we're so thankful for you for being on this program. We really wanted a sense from you. What, what, what was it about this that made you think we have to be a part of this? Um,
4: well, as a member of the Central Connecticut Health District's Opioid Initiative Response Group, and I learned about Hope. Uh, what I came to realize, and the reason why I'm embracing it, it's an alternative to the generally failed. Uh, criminal justice model of punishment in court-committed treatment programs for those who are chemically addicted. Uh, the opiate addict who is arrested for mere possession or property crimes to support their addiction is back to opiate use within hours of our uh, release of them. Wow. So it right. failed.
1: Consistently. And you saw this over and over. Absolutely. And were there, I'm sure there were moments that you saw people in crisis, and if you have to arrest them, did you think, I, I've seen this story
3: before?
4: Absolutely. Uh, And we have several cases already that uh, we dealt with here at uh, Berlin PD um, where there was no no alternative. Uh, We had an individual that uh, we brought in uh, on a complaint from a manufacturer. He'd been selling tens of thousands of dollars of equipment. Um, The owner found out through uh, Craigslist and such that his property was being sold by his manager and um, we went, brought him in, he talked to us, Uh, we were going to release him, uh, let him know that we were going to write a warrant later, and he said, I can't go home. He says, uh, nobody knows I have this addiction, my my boss didn't know, my my family doesn't know, and so uh, I spent hours with a detective trying to reach out to all the uh, recovery um, uh, and drug treatment programs in the uh, uh, area, weren't able to do it. I called uh, Hospitals for Central Connecticut, talked to a, a triage nurse, let him know that I have a guy who can't go home because he says he's got to use. Uh, so consequently, they accepted him. They kept him. They uh, made him comfortable. They got him uh, into Rushford the very next day. Two weeks later when we uh, had a court appearance, he was still clean, and the process had started. I mean, it, for us, it was a home run.
0: Wow. That's a great story. Yeah.
1: And pushing forward that there is hope. I mean, I love the name of it. There are a lot of folks who I'm curious in our audience this morning. What are your thoughts about it? Do you think that there is hope? Do you feel it's too soft? We want to know what you think. We do want to hear from you. Call 860522WTIC. That is 8605229842.
0: So, Lieutenant, you believe uh, in your experience uh, is the, that the police force is actively supportive of this kind of an approach? I would imagine it would be a, a very positive impact on free up our police to to do the work that's really necessary in our communities. Talk a little bit about the the culture um, that you experience that facilitates this, or perhaps some in some ways gets in the way.
5: Well,
4: I think what's happening is that, uh, particularly in the communities, uh, in the law enforcement uh, departments that are in communities, that they provide the first responder uh, aspect of uh, emergency pre-hospital care. Uh, we're going out there and we're uh, pushing naloxone, uh, the generic of Narcan, into these patients, and uh, we're seeing them uh, recover, start breathing, uh, their color improves, um, and uh, it's, it's, it's a first step. And we we also understand that um, if we make an arrest, it doesn't stop the problem. So for the officers that are involved in the life-saving aspect of, of what we do in law enforcement, uh, it's being embraced uh, from some of the traditional corners. It's going to take a while to get that learning curve and understanding that um, this failed system, criminal justice system approach, is is not working and that uh, we don't have to see these people over and over and over again just to be resuscitated or to be arrested. So yeah, I, I it's, a, it's a curve.
0: Yeah, I imagine that, you know you're, you're reflective of a societal issue when we talk mm-hmm. about. I think Steve mentioned the word stigma. Absolutely. I know I know Pat likes to use the word discrimination. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, it's something that, like you say, it is a curve
1: and very real. And I'm curious, even your own personal emotional evolution, getting to this place where yes, you realize that putting somebody in jail in that criminal justice system isn't going to work. What did it take to get you there?
4: Um, actually, on the front end, prior to law enforcement, I was a director of New Britain Emergency Medical Services, so we were treating way back in the day. Hmm. Um, I'm somewhat of a uh, liberal, I think, um, in my thinking, and an understanding that um, education and treatment programs is the way to resolve uh, this particular crisis and, and not necessarily... Uh, Uh, incarceration. Um, Similarly, when we do proactive programs, whether it's highway safety or whatever, uh, the more people we can reach, uh, the more prevention we have, um, the better the outcomes.
3: So if we think about the officers bringing somebody into an emergency room and the recovery coaches being there, I mean, that is that has made a significant difference. Our recovery coaches get about 95% of the people they see into some sort of treatment or back into, for example, a support group like NA or AA that they've been connected to. Um, but prior to that, if we were lucky enough to get 5%, 10% of the people that came into emergency rooms into treatment, it was really really different.
1: Wow. I'm very curious about Steve's response. If I can read something that you said when we first announced this program, you said, life could have been so much different if a police officer gave me this option. What does that mean now looking back?
2: Well, um, you know, throughout my twenties, there was time, so many times where, um, where there was property crime or s- stealing for money to use where I came in contact with police officers when it was whether I was just homeless and wandering the streets um, you know none there was never a time where they were, you know wanted they had the option of offering me treatment i'm sure if they did they they would have but um, you know it was always either They just had no choice but to arrest me at the time. And I would go to jail, uh, go to court, and, you know, they'd send me to a sober house or put me on probation. And there was never the education. Um, I was never, you know, educated about what I was actually up against Mm -hmm. and how much help I really needed. Um, So, you know, had I been offered that at the time, whether I was truly ready or not, at, at least it could have planted a seed, educated me about, Truly, what I was up against, and how much help I really needed, and it it could have um, saved me a lot of pain and heartache.
0: Pat Reamer, as the president of the Hartford Healthcare Behavioral Health Network, uh, and the launching of this Hope Program in partnership with New Britain and Berlin Police, where do you see it going? Um, what's the reception to the program? Uh, What's the future look like?
3: I think that we will see this spread. I mean, I think New Britain and Berlin were early adopters. You know, Manchester, I believe, was the first city in this uh, state that participated. They were the ones that came to us and sort of educated us, and New Britain and Berlin immediately picked up. Meriden's going to start doing this. Uh I think we're just going to see more and more police departments doing this. And we now have this package of recovery coaches in our emergency rooms and have trained our emergency personnel to actually start treatment in the emergency department. We're getting ahead of this now. Um, And I think that that's really very, very positive. Is
0: there a resource barrier, uh, whether it is in the police departments Uh, on the treatment side of it, provider side of it, the availability of beds and programs in the community? What's going to hold this back, if anything?
3: Well, I do think that sometimes the availability of beds can be an issue, but I also think what we're learning as we learn every month about these um, diseases is that Um, For example, our match programs, medication-assisted treatment close to home. If we induct somebody, for example, in in an emergency room and start them on a medication-assisted treatment, they may not have to go into a bed. Mm -hmm. They could go into many outpatient treatment programs that are now doing this that also offer group therapy, and psychosocial supports. It's not just the medication. I want to be very clear about that. But So it's possible that we won't need as many beds or certainly don't need more beds if we can move in this direction. Mm. Um, you know, I think probably where... Connecticut and the system has a little bit of a hole, if you will, is in 30-day programs, 30-day rehab programs, where people can stay for a longer period of time and get a little bit more uh, time under their belt before they uh, go back out.
0: Let me ask Steve, as a recovering uh, addict, um, by the way, is that the right language? How do, how would you prefer to be um, referred to in that regard?
2: Um, that… that um- Comfortable with anything? Um, <laughs> okay. I, I guess when I introduce myself, uh, you know, it's I'm recovering from heroin use disorder, but okay. uh, you know, I'm comfortable
0: with that. Pat, you have an opinion
3: about that? An adi- an individual in recovery, an individual person first.
0: <laughs>
5: person individual.
0: First. Thank you. I, I do like that, and I hope that catches on with all of our listeners as well. So, Steve, uh, as someone who is an individual in recovery, um, and you understand the design of the hope program is there something else or something more you would hope would be embedded in a program like this that would have been beneficial to you based on your understanding of the way the program currently operates
2: um the only you know i i think it's so new and it's gonna they'll work out the kinks as it moves forward um you know i i The the motto, we can't arrest our way out of this, is huge. You know, If police officers come in contact with, you know, somebody who, you know, I I think at the current time it is if they are going to be arrested for possession or paraphernalia charge, um, they can be, you know, if requested treatment, they can forego the arrest. Um, So I don't, you know, in my case, you know, that would have been helpful multiple times. Um, However, a lot of my arrests were... You know, for stealing, um, you know, for the money to use, so it wasn't necessarily just the possession or paraphernalia charge. So, you know, I think it's it's a huge step in the right direction, and you know, as it moves forward, they'll we'll work out the kinks for sure. Um, so, I would, you know, maybe like to see it go. I don't know if it's even possible um, with certain crimes, but you know, obviously, to maybe if it extends out a little bit. Further, other than possession and paraphernalia charges, to other you know uh, minor the, crimes, other related charges. And
1: right. Lieutenant, because we have to, we have to say goodbye to you in just a moment. What are your thoughts about this? As you, as, what is? What are you? Uh, you told us a great story. Where is it going? What's the future look like for you and your your town, your city?
4: Well, first of all, I think that um, to answer the, that point, um, in our judicial district of New Britain. Um, uh, State's Attorney uh, Brian Prolesky, Supervisory uh, as, uh, Director of the uh, Court, has embraced this, and he's reaching out to other um, departments for us. And so that's, that's the first piece. The second piece that's really interesting is from his end, he can make a HOPE Referral. Because as much as we can't arrest our way out, he has made the claim we cannot prosecute our way out of this situation. So people with even property crimes, if the victim, whether it's a, a merchant uh, or a, a family's made whole, um, these, these individuals uh, with the opiate disorder can be offered hope again without further going into, you know, uh, the criminal justice system.
1: Excellent. That was Lieutenant Jim Gosselin. We really appreciate your time this morning, and you are listening to Healthcare Matters. We will be right back.
0: Welcome back to Healthcare Matters. This is Elliot Joseph. I'm here with my co-host Rebecca Stewart. And if you're just joining us this morning, we're taking a look at new initiatives to help curb the opioid epidemic and new ways to help people who are in crisis. Additionally, we're also focusing our attention on being responsible with those prescriptions that we all have in our homes and what we do with those in a responsible way. So with us this morning, we're being joined now by Dr. Craig Allen, who is a child and adolescent psychiatrist and an addiction medicine specialist and is the vice president for substance abuse at Hartford HealthCare. We also have in studio Steve McKinnon, who has been telling his very personal story um, about how you can be released from the grips of addiction with the right help and the right treatment. And Pat Reamer is also with us. She is the president of Hartford Healthcare's Behavioral Health Network and a passionate zealot leader uh, around substance abuse and and mental health services welcome back to the show everyone
1: welcome back we do want to begin this half hour with dr. Craig Allen Um, we've talked a lot about changing attitudes stigma discrimination and a lot of folks in that world really believe Okay, just you gotta you gotta toughen up. You gotta quit. And why can't you just do that? So, Dr. Allen, I'd love for you to sort of start this conversation by telling us what is happening in the brain, and how quickly can somebody get addicted to these very potent painkillers, Dr. Allen?
5: Good morning. Uh, you know, it's different for different people. How quickly someone become a, can become addicted, and I think what's confusing for a lot of people and makes them think this has something to do with willpower and uh, this is fully a decision you're willing to make, is that the substance use disorders begin with choices and they begin by actually using the substance. Obviously, you can't become addicted to something you're never exposed to. But at some point, there is a transition and there's a physiologic change that takes place and this use become, goes to misuse and then transitions onto being a medical disease, a chronic medical disease that actually changes different structures and pathways in the brain. And the most effective response is the most effective approach to substance use disorders is to treat substance use disorders as a chronic disease. First, obviously, we'd like to prevent it from happening. But if it does happen, we, you know, we want to identify risky use. But if someone develops a disorder, we want to identify as early as possible and intervene as soon as possible because those are the best outcomes we can have. And once someone gets treatment, we have to understand, as with other chronic diseases, ongoing treatment, ongoing monitoring is, is very, very important because there can be a relapse and there often is.
1: So this idea, when you look at the brain and you see what's happening and you see that it is changing, how long does it take that brain after treatment to go back to sort of the way it was before ever being introduced to this yeah. drug?
5: Well, you know, there are some studies that show it can take um, a year for some of the changes to uh, reverse themselves. But, unfortunately, there may be some changes that can occur very early on and may never go back to baseline. So it's really, really important to uh, to approach this as a long-term issue and something that um, is going to have to become part of your life, but you can make it, as, as we've heard about earlier today, uh, with someone in recovery like Steve there, um you, it can be part of your life. You have to monitor it, but it doesn't have to interfere with your effectiveness and um, your fulfillment and your the way you can benefit um, society. But you have to always be aware of a chronic disease, and if you're not paying attention to it, it can sneak back up on you, just like uh, diabetes or hypertension or COPD or other chronic diseases can.
0: Does that imply, then, that... Some of those changes in brain pattern um, don't fully recede away and remain, and and a person remains susceptible, uh, as opposed to you know being cured of cancer, for example.
5: Right, that's right. So, uh, you if you want to think of it as uh, riding a bike, I have not ridden a bike for a couple of years, but if I were to go out to the garage and grab my son's. I could whip down the road um it would be far different from when I just learned to ride a bike so the pathways are there and they're they're in your brain and they've been strongly reinforced as with any type of learning and what this is is thought of in some circles is uh, of a uh, an aberrant learning disorder in that your brain has been trained to pursue these substances because this is a this is a hijacking of normal brain pathways. This is these pathways, these pleasure pathways or reward pathways, it's probably a better way to talk about it. Are the things that drive all human beings to pursue a healthy, active um activities. They're rewarding. But what these substances do is to hijack those pathways and then distort those pathways so that um, it's really hard to stop pursuing the substance and a lot of times triggers and cues are in place that you may not even be consciously aware of and your brain is working towards getting that substance and and you are not uh, fully capable of preventing yourself from going from stopping that pursuit in part because some of the changes are in the prefrontal cortex the decision-making parts of the brain that part of the brain doesn't work as well particularly in people that are in the throes of addiction and that part starts to work Better as you go through therapy and you get medication, and you re-strengthen that part of your brain to make better decisions, put on the brakes, organize your life, that type of thing.
0: So, Dr. Allen, what differentiates someone who becomes addicted to drugs or other substances um, from someone who becomes addicted to running and fitness? Um, uh, that that's a mystery to me, and so how, can is, do you have any insight into that?
5: Well, uh, for one thing, the obvious part is uh, someone addicted to running and fitness, you know, see, it's the word addicted that we, we have to look at. And when we are trying to define um, the disorder of addiction, or so, which is a moderate to severe substance use disorder, we look at what the criteria are. The criteria for having an actual addiction is that things are dysfunctional in your life and you are putting yourself... Or others at harm. You've tried to stop. You feel you may feel bad about using. It may be affecting your mental health. It may be affecting different organs in your body. It may have uh, negatively impacted your work and your family.
0: You may be out committing crimes. Right? Like you may be out committing
5: crimes right? and uh, you know, in, in a negatively impacting society. It, so, so if you're truly talking about someone being addicted to running are you then are you talking about someone who is running instead of picking their kids up at school when they're supposed to pick them up uh, running instead of going to work so so you know could that happen uh, i think that that could happen but it's pretty rare right I think we're talking about behaviors that people may enjoy engaging in, and they are functional, pro social, uh, and don't damage, you know, uh, get in the way of their going towards goals they have. That's helpful.
1: And one of the things that Dr. Allen actually educated me about a few years back when we were focusing on these changing attitudes, we were talking specifically about babies who were born dependent because there was a lot of discussion, and people were calling them addicted. Babies, right, huh? and that was language wise for what you're saying, that was inaccurate. Babies were born dependent, never ever addicted, because they right. can't exhibit those behaviors you're talking yeah. about.
5: Physically, they're dependent, and if you take away the substance, they have phys- a physical response and a withdrawal symptoms. But, you know, as you're saying, babies aren't out there pursuing drugs on the street and they. foregoing their mortgage payments. Correct.
1: Right. Now I do want to talk because it's so fascinating and this is something that is newer. We're talking about how emergency departments are now treating. Um, Steve talked about being, it, recognizing that he was in crisis going to emergency departments. I think at the time you were living in Massachusetts, they would leave you in a bed for three days and then off you went back out on the street. You've been working diligently, um, in our state to change this and tell us what you're doing in emergency departments. How What's being received and why wasn't this done before
5: well I, you know I, I think that this is being um, received uh, by the emergency department personnel in a in a wonderful way because they finally have some tools to use to address this population of patients who would repeatedly come into the emergency department. So, rather than uh, treating these people like someone who had a myocardial infarction or a heart attack, um, they would just uh, treat the acute symptoms. But they didn't have the tools, and, and they didn't have the pathway to treat the underlying problem. So rather than um, this past model where someone shows up in the emergency room, they've overdosed from opioids, the overdose is reversed with naloxone, the medical situation is stabilized, and they say, um, here are some places you might go and get treatment. Um, "Good luck to you and the person shows up again in a week and eventually they get jaded and say, my gosh, why do I even help this person? They just keep coming back in. Right. but underneath that, these are these are all medical health care providers. they want to help these people and they don't know how. So the pathway is like with someone who had a heart attack, not only do we treat and stabilize the medical, situation but we connect them to the treatment and we transition them in a seamless warm handoff transition to a program where they can get the help that they need. Uh, Pat was talking about the recovery coaches and they can help greatly with this but also this new process of getting people inducted or started on medication in the emergency room that will manage their withdrawal symptoms. It'll manage their cravings and it will help them to Think clearer and make better decisions, and get to the follow-up program in the community. Pat mentioned the uh, match clinics that we have. We, ha- Harvard Healthcare, has them located near all of our emergency rooms, and we can actually transition someone directly from the emergency room to one of our programs, and they get treatment, and th- group therapy, and individual therapy, and they, they learn to develop these skills that will strengthen their prefrontal cortexes, their decision-making processes, and identify dangerous situations that they have in, in uh, that are putting them at risk.
0: Yes. Um, S- Steve, as an individual in recovery, you're hearing Dr. Allen describe the evolution of these programs. Your reaction uh, to any of this in term plus, minus, minus... Uh, any reaction at all
2: yeah i mean it's it's so uh you know i can't even describe it it's amazing um really just it's, it's finally it's just kind of like a, a breath of fresh air you know yeah. that we're moving in the right direction um because like i you know for me um i didn't know what i was up against you know i yeah. always thought i was just weak-willed and i couldn't stop why couldn't i stop you know everybody in the world including myself you know I would make assumptions that everybody thought I was just a drug addict criminal and I you know I didn't deserve anything and I thought the same way about myself and I assumed you did too and I didn't know what was going on Um, and when I came to you know Rushford and now that they're promoting it's you know the education the the long-term treatment Um, you know for me Doing things like this, staying connected to Rushford and Hartford Healthcare—it's all that. Yeah.
0: So let, let me ask um, uh, both Doctor Allen and Pat Reamer. Um, you know, this notion, as Steve described, and others have have described. You know, he had to get to a point where he was willing to accept he needed to change. Mm-hmm. And and now we're putting programs in place where folks like Steve will intersect with those programs, perhaps before they're mentally at that point. Why does it work? I mean, uh,
3: so. I think that I was going to say last week I was actually uh, looking at some recidivism numbers. People who have been touched by a recovery coach, how often are they coming back? Because one of the complaints, if you will, that you would hear from the emergency departments was that people just come in over and over and over again. By tying people to recovery coaches, we are seeing. Incredible decreases in people coming back into our emergency rooms because the recovery coaches will stay connected through that to them through their treatment. And so, uh, you know, that was our big question. That's powerful. The recovery yeah. coaches are getting them into treatment, but then is it working over the long term? And right. what we are believing we're seeing at this point is that it is yeah that it is really getting people into treatment and into long-term that's extraordinary and
1: i love this remarkable switch in your brain steve where you sort of finally get to that point where you realize i do have value i am up against this monster and i am gonna fight for my life which does have worth was it being in treatment that got you to that point? Was it being in a group social setting with other folks who were fighting that? Where Where did that moment happen that you thought, I am going to fight for my life. I do have worth. I have something to give.
2: Um, that was actually after I was already in treatment for a little while. Um, you know, when I first went in, it was because I just, I didn't want to die. Mm-hmm. You know, I, my life was on the line and... I just I knew if I didn't get the help, I was gonna use again. You know, my past showed that. If I didn't do something or receive treatment, I would eventually use again. And so after I had, you know, got my body clean of the substances and started doing work on myself and started fighting the guilt and shame associated with my disorder, which for me is the silver lining for my recovery is continuing to fight the guilt and the shame Mm -hmm. um, associated with my past and once I started doing that I realized I could do this and I as long as I continued to work on that and I realized that I can I can become something and offer something to society and realize that you know I'm worthy of love it's awesome.
1: Can it, can you talk about the clarity, sort of, that you can see things with now versus the cloud of using? Is there a different, like your your mindset as you wake up? What is that like?
2: Oh, it's amazing. You know, it's just it's, there's no comparison to waking up in the throes of my disorder when the only thing I can think of is how do I get the next one. It doesn't matter. The consequences, is just how do I change the way that I feel right now? Um, as opposed to today where, you know, I'm in school to become a counselor and I wake up. I have a beautiful fiance. We have a home together. We have a life. And, you know, I like wake up this morning before coming to do a show like this. It's, I wake up with a peace of mind, with a sense of dignity, with, you know, a, a drive to, to help others that just makes life you know it's a simple normal life and it's the best life i could have ever ask for
0: steve that's really powerful actually i wish we were right at the end of the show right now so we could end on that sentiment <laughs> you just expressed it is so powerful in so many different ways uh but we still have a little bit of time in front of us and i want to turn back to dr allen um you know the the this problem that we face as a society let's go to the f- towards the front end of this um and talk about Prescribing patterns, uh, in the medical profession. You know, I know for myself, as someone who's had, uh, several surgeries, I've been in a situation where I've been transitioned out of the hospital, been handed a prescription for 60 pain meds, and been told my instructions were stay ahead of the pain. All right. Well, you know, what, what, what does that mean? And so, um, what's happening on the professional side of this, uh, simultaneously?
5: Yeah, you know this. This began really back um, two thousand and nine. Data came out of the Center for Disease Control and and in Connecticut there were two areas that were, had the highest rates of opioid overdose deaths in the country. One was Torrington, one was Wallingford. And, when, and there was a uh, rapid assessment team that was pulled together by SAMHSA, and they identified prescribing problems. These were middle-aged women who were overdosing and dying. And from that point on, there's been a, a swell, and and it's really uh, it's really gotten much much better in terms of educating healthcare providers about both um, the dangers of opioids and uh, the availability of naloxone and the availability of non-opioid pain management strategies in medical schools and in graduate medical education. There's not very good training in those areas. And, and uh, that certainly has been changing. Um, the state of Connecticut, the Connecticut State Medical Society, and Hartford HealthCare has been working um, doing uh, videos and in-person training on uh, safe prescribing, alternatives to opioids, but also there's a project that uh, the Opioid Management Council at Hartford HealthCare has been involved in for the last couple of years, which has gone directly to the doctors and given them information about their own prescribing patterns and the prescribing patterns of their colleagues. And that has had a very, very significant impact on opioid analgesic prescribing in Hartford HealthCare, a decrease of... 56% in opioids being prescribed, and that's really important because that loops back to the very beginning Mm -hmm. when you started talking about these extra pills that are sitting around in people's kitchen drawers or in their vanities or, you know, other places in the community, all these extra pills. We've got to get rid of those pills, but let's stop prescribing them, particularly when there may be other alternatives. So uh, the state of Connecticut has had an impact in some of the efforts that they put in place, like the Change the uh program, and, and they've had decreases close to 20%. But here at Hartford HealthCare, over 50%, 56% decrease. and In um,
1: those prescriptions.
5: That's right, in prescriptions for opioids, that coupled with training for non-opioid pain management. It's not that we don't want to manage the pain. It's just that there's alternatives, and there's better training out there, and we've been trying to provide that.
0: Yeah, and for myself and for listeners who are are listening and wonder, well, what took so long? Um, You know, this is an example of what, as an industry, quite frankly, and certainly at Hartford HealthCare. uh, We've made uh, tremendous investments in the electronic health record. Yes. Uh, and that now gives the in, the profession, uh, access to data that allows yeah. us to really understand these fact patterns and intercede in them in a meaningful way and then track progress, uh, towards, uh, the goals that we established prior to that. And that's, you know, just in the last decade really, uh, and for us, the last five years. Um, we were flying blind in terms of what individual physicians and practices were doing in this regard. So I, you know, I am increasingly optimistic about our ability to change the future of healthcare and its impact on our health, uh, because of what's happening in the industry.
1: And making sure and flagging, whether it comes from the patient, him or herself, flagging saying, you know what, I am at risk maybe we should talk about this before I have this surgery. And Steve, you were just saying that you did that. You had oral surgery, you were a little anxious and you worked out a plan.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I just had to, you know, have the insight that I needed to inform the dentists and the doctors that, you know, I have had a history with substance use and, you know, there has to, we have to look for an alternative to pain management. And we did that and, you know, surgery successful.
1: And tremendous kudos to you for being brave enough to say that because I think that that's part of it too is you know can we flag it like Elliot is saying in those electronic medical records to help people make those make those calls. I do want to point out that there is help if you need it. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't give you somewhere to go. If you're listening, you're in crisis. You know someone in crisis. Head to matchrecovery.org or eight five five eight two five four zero two six. The number for help is eight five five eight two
0: Two five four zero two six. Pat Reamer is the head of the Behavioral Health Network uh, and, and a, a leader in this field. Um, what's the future look like? What are you most excited about uh, going forward where you, you see real progress in, in, in our
3: midst? I think that the, the thing that excites me is the real progress in terms of, as you said, I said earlier, the discrimination. So as, as I was listening to Steve talk about how he felt that's what I describe as stigma, how the individual feels, but how other people in society are treating people with these addictions, I think we're beginning to turn a corner. I think the discrimination is starting to decrease. I, I still think there are people out there that say, just stop. Why mm-hmm. can't you just stop? And this is sort of a moral failing. But I think that that is less and less, which allows people to come forward for treatment. Because if you're afraid that you're going to be judged, you're not going to come forward and ask for help.
1: And that's what today is about. That's what this whole program has been about. And hearing Steve's story, it's been a remarkable day. So we appreciate everyone who has been in our program this morning. Steve, thank you for all of your insight. Dr. Allen, thank you for your insight. Lieutenant Jim Goslin, And, of course, our amazing president of the Behavioral Health Network for all of your passion, Pat Reamer. You have been listening to Healthcare Matters.
0: This has been Healthcare Matters, sponsored by Hartford HealthCare. Tune in next month as we continue to discuss the status of healthcare, determine what works and what doesn't, and work to bridge the gap. Healthcare Matters on WTIC. News Talk 1080 at WTIC.com.
5: We have-